Good morning. Good to see y'all. Back in the Gospel of John again this morning, and, and I'm going to read the same verses that we read last week. There's an awful lot of material here. So we're going to read verses 1 through 11, and if you will please stand with me for the reading of the Word. And again, I want to just mention this. Chapter and verse divisions are sometimes arbitrary and they sometimes hinder us. So understand that when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, he is continuing a message which he is giving to the to his disciples there that began in the latter verses of the 13th chapter. Because they are, they're troubled now, they're concerned. Jesus said, I'm going away, I'm going to leave you. And where I'm going, you can't come. And Peter, Peter said, Lord, why can't we come with you now? So now, so Jesus says, comforting them. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. That's the way I believe that should be translated. And it's a reference to what he's already said back in chapter 12, verse 44, where, where he said, Whoever believes, that is, trusts in me, trusts not in me only, but in him, the Father, who sent me. And whoso sees me, sees him who sent me. So verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. That I go, uh, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And if I go, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long time, <clears throat> have I been with you so, so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You may be seated. Jesus affirmed here that he, and by implication, he alone was the way, 
the truth, and the life. I am. And I am the only way, truth, and life. He then reinforced this statement of exclusivity with the assertion that no one comes to the Father except through Him. I'm the only way. This simple fact is that exclusivity is the foundation of all religion. Every religion claims to be the only one. Now that's a fact. Nevertheless, we live in a world here that is that rejects all claims of uniqueness. And this leads to misguided arguments that old ideas should be treated equally as true, even if these ideas contradict each other. So we have my truth and your truth. My truth, you can have your truth and I can have my truth and your truth may contradict my truth, but my truth is as good as your truth and your truth is as good as my truth. What? (laughs) I mean, that's, that's craziness. But the notion that love demands, and this is the this is really the issue. The, there's an idea, this notion in the world that that we that we need to love each other. They really don't understand what love is, but there's this understanding that that, that we must have love in the world, and if we have love in the world, that means that that love demands acceptance and equal standing, and that then destroys the uniqueness of any religion. Everybody is the same. And this, of course, makes the claims of Jesus very offensive. Why is Jesus hated so much in the world today? Because he claims to be the only way to the Father. People don't want that. They wanted Jesus... Who is accepting of anyone? Buddha or uh, Shinto or Muslim or doesn't matter what you are. You, you are welcome and accepted to the Father. If there is a, a God, of course, we're not even sure there is a God. In fact, probably not a God because everything really started by happenstance millions and billions of years ago, so to speak. So we don't even know whether there's a God at all. But this this exclusiveness of Jesus is also one of the reasons why so many Christians, even conservatives, are reluctant to speak out as obedient witnesses to Jesus. Why do not people witness freely the gospel of Jesus Christ? They're afraid. They're afraid of rebuke. They're afraid of censure. They're afraid of being shut off and and shut down. So we live in a we live in a in a culture that demands tolerance. That's what they say. We all need to be tolerant of one another. And tolerance demands coexistence. If we're going to coexist, we've got to uh, tolerate each other. I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of what's 
the idea, but it's not the way it works. And and here and why? There's really two views or two forms of uh, what we would call coexistence. One is what I call the politically correct version. The politically correct version of coexistence is actually based on submission to the view that there is no absolute truth. To coexist in the world today, you must really deny that there is any truth. And so every religion should have then... uh, uh, no religion, I should say, should have the right to claim to be exclusive. And so we have this axiom that you hear frequently. There are many roads to heaven. I, like somebody said one time, there, there's, you know, you can get to the post office by, in many, from many directions. There's several ways to get to the post office. And that's like Jesus. Uh, you're going to heaven because there are many roads that that uh, lead to heaven. And uh, the person that was making that argument, then the preacher said to him, yes, there are many roads to, to the post office. But when you die, you're not going to the post office. <laughs> yeah. Then there, is the, then there is the politically correct version. Or the bit, excuse me, the biblically correct version, the biblically correct version, which argues then that coexistence is based on freedom. Now, this is, listen to me. We believe in freedom. Every every religion should have the freedom to exist and propagate. All claims of exclusive standing then, when you have this freedom, an atmosphere of freedom, then every claim of exclusivity must then have the responsibility of proving that it is exclusive. But sadly, that's not, not how most religions operate. Reli- most religions operate on the basis of force. It's either psychological or it's physical oppression. But that's what they use to, ma- to grow and to maintain their standing. Christianity is not that way. Christianity demands exclusiv- exclusivity, but there is also the freedom to say no. but then you're going to suffer the consequences of saying no. See, now, I think there are three principles that govern exclusivity. The first principle is the principle of reason. God gave us the ability to think things out. Reason. So we ask, are the claims of Jesus reasonable? Then there is the principle of revelation. God gave us revelation of himself in the scriptures. What do the scriptures teach about the claims of Jesus? Then thirdly, 
is the principle of, re of reality. Reality. What is real, truth, lived out. God is truth because He is God. Scripture is truth because it's the re written revelation of God. Now here Jesus claims to be the truth because He is the living revelation of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you... As Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it will, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said, Have I been so long time with you, Philip, and you don't know me? He who, see, he who knows me knows the Father. He who has seen me sees the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Because... He is the living revelation of the Father. So this is what we want to investigate here in this message. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ. First of all, I'm going to establish that here in this passage because Jesus is charging the disciples to trust Him. They're in verse number 1. Trust me. You trust in God? Trust in me. That's a command. The twofold command. Trust God. You claim to trust Him, now trust Him. And if you trust God, trust me. As I pointed out last week, that in that, Jesus is making very clear that He and the Father are equal. They are the same. Jesus is God come in the flesh. And it points back then to what, what he revealed there in the, in the 12th chapter. I, it was very interesting to me to see that connection there. And there he spoke of this after the plot was revealed that he was now going to uh, be the subject of, uh, of they're going to try to arrest him and put him to death. One man must die for the nation. And when this was, was revealed... Jesus said, Ah, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Not, not by what they all hoped, His elevation. See, this is the triumphal entry. They were welcoming the King. But the same people that were shouting, Hosanna! On that day, we're now going to be shouting, Crucify! Crucify! We'll not have this man to reign over us. And Jesus knew that. So, the disciples, I still think, had the expectation that somehow Jesus was going to overcome all this and establish himself on David's throne as the, their messianic king. That's why I believe uh, Peter said the, same, said the things that he said. But now, when he makes this revelation there in this 12th chapter about his going to die, they're becoming troubled by it. He's going to lose his life. Not, not, not being elevated to the throne, he's going to glorify God by losing his life. And that's when he talks about the seed falling into the ground and dying. If the seed falls into the ground, 
and dies, it bears much fruit. And that fruit was his followers being regenerated to new life. His death was necessary for their life. Yes, he is Lord and King. And his followers must receive him as such. And the evidence of his reign in their lives was not to be possessed of a troubled heart. No, you're not going to sit in the, in the, the uh, throne, uh, on the throne with me in, in this glorious messianic kingdom. I'm going to die. And you have to die too. You have to die to yourself. But, you're go- but in this you will reign with me. And the evidence of your reigning with me is you're trusting me and not having a troubled heart in it. At this point then, Jesus exhorted his hearers with the principle of death to self. Loving one's life is to lose it. Do you, do you, do you understand that? This world is possessed with this unique... It's not unique. This feature. Love yourself. Love yourself. So everything that goes on in life revolves around my loving myself. And I respond to the things of life in that scenario. What does Jesus say? If you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you choose to die to self and serve the king, you will actually preserve your life to eternal life. Now listen to that. And following Jesus, you will be with him forever and you'll be honored by the Father. That's what he sets forth. But it means giving up yourself. You can't do that. You can't do that. That has to be a work of God. And we see that also in this. You know, Jesus uh, we, Jesus said to the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. But as we noted last week, Jesus was troubled. There back in chapter 12, verse 27. So that his own would not be troubled. And thus Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes or trusts in me, believes or trusts not, and believes or trusts not in me only, but in him who sent, who." who sent him, the Father, and then he repeats that charge, trust in me and trust in the Father. So this charge then is based on Jesus being the light of the world. See, here's another connection. Jesus came into the world as the light of the world. That's back in chapter 12, verse 45. And at that time, he simply reiterated his his pronouncement 
There in verse 12 of chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You want to you have a, a sense of security? You want to know where you're going? You want to have assurance? In, I mean, boy, we live in troubled times. What's happening next? Follow Jesus and you won't have that. You'll have peace. Jesus established this, this truth in the prologue, or John did, when he, uh, there, back in chapter 1. In uh, verse number 4, In Him was life. See, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, in the prologue it says, In Him was life. And notice, here's the connection. The life was the light of men. Boy, I tell you what, did we don't know what's going on in the world today. It's sure troubling. Don't look in the darkness. Look to the light. Life is in the light. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What Jesus is doing here is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 42 and verse, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness. I will take you, he's, here is God the Father speaking to the Son. He said, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and I have called you in righteousness. Truth. I will take you by the hand and will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind and to bring out the prisoners from the, from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. That's sin, sinners. In uh, Isaiah chapter 49, verses 6 and 7, it, when, uh, and this is one of my favorite chapters where the Lord Jesus is debating with the Father. I don't want to just come down and and become a savior for the Jews. So the Lord responds here. It is too light a thing. That you should be my servant. To raise up the tribes of Jacob. And to bring back the preserved of Israel. I agree. So I will make you a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach. To the end of the earth. Notice not it, whose salvation. My salvation. God's giving out salvation. Are you one of those to whom he is giving that salvation? And how? what's the evidence of it? That you don't have a troubled heart and that you trust in him and trust in the Father. That you're not fearful of the darkness. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One, and His Holy One, that's Jesus, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. What is, you know what I think the Lord is saying here? While the world rejects you, I'm going to turn you into kings and princes. And you're going to prostrate yourself before the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Wow. 
So Jesus is here described as the true light that gives light to everyone as he was coming into the world. This is what we read in John 1, nine. He is the true light based upon Isaiah here which gives light to everyone as he has come into the world. Although he was the creator of the world and founder of the nation of Israel, he came to them and according to Isaiah, they despised him. Despised and rejected. They did not receive him. But there was a remnant within the nation that did receive him. And here says, but to those who received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God, even the ones that believed on his name. Now here, be careful. This, the language here has often been construed by modern readers to mean that some accepted Jesus into their heart as personal Savior. To receive him as personal Savior. However, receiving here does not mean that. It does not mean receiving Jesus in order to be saved. You read that very carefully and you'll see that that's not so. Receiving him, what does receiving him mean? Receiving him actually means an official and open reception of him as king and lord. Uh, This is important. It is believing, it's the believing remnant here who, like in Luke's gospel there, Zechariah and Simeon in the temple and Anna, who was also in the temple, received him and welcomed him. These were the ones who displayed faith. That is, their believing on his name. Their receiving was, was not because they wanted to salvation. It's because they had salvation. And they recognized who he was. Those who don't have salvation reject him and despise him. They were granted then the authority or the right to become sons of God. This this is one that just, it thrills my heart to read it. Those who trust Him, to them God gives the right, the authority, to be counted as sons of God. I mean, that's just, that just blows my mind. And as we've, pointed out the Greek that Greek term uh, become is used in a fi- of an official manifesting one does not become a child of God by believing as many teach in this verse rather it is those who are believing or trusting in the name of Jesus who are shown to be sons of God beings that have been brought into existence by a direct creative act of God. What was that direct creative act of God? It's called regeneration, the new birth. Have you been born of God? John reveals then the means of this process in the very next verse. These, that is the sons of God, were born. 
not of the not of blood, belonging to the Jewish race, nor of the will of the flesh, because they wanted to, nor of the will of man, because somebody else wanted them to, but of God. Chapter one, verse thirteen. Now to suggest here that. John means accepting Jesus for salvation. One must believe that salvation requires the sinner to initiate the transaction, which is to mix faith and works. If one must say yes to God before God can save him, he's putting God at his bidding. God doesn't work that way. God's in charge. Period. Alistair Begg, and I think I referenced this one before, but I want to just repeat it here. Alistair Begg, in in his sermon, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Referred to the usual question, which is asked, he calls it the Fort Lauderdale question. I'm not really sure why he calls it that, but he he says, if you were to die tonight and should uh, should seek entry into heaven... What would you say? You know, that's a good question to ask people. If you died right now, or if you died tonight, and you stood before the pearly gates, and St. Peter were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? And then, Beg responded, and this, I like this, I really like this. If you or I answered that in the first person because I accepted Jesus or because I went forward in a service or something to that effect. He says, we're immediately wrong. The only proper answer, he said, is in the third person because he. Because he. And that's what I say. I say the same thing. Yes, he saved me by grace and the evidence of his of his saving me by grace is my believing in and trusting Jesus. The gospel, the good news is that Jesus did everything and that God forgave me of my sin and regenerated my my dead and sinful heart on the basis of his atoning work. I was born again, producing new life which then enables me, my believing in his name. I believe in him because he first gave me the life to believe. And Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. He is my King. And in that I am shown to be a son of God by right. So let me show you here now the the demonstration of his uniqueness. Jesus uh, in the Gospel of John, has there are seven I am sayings. The first one in the Gospel of John is found in chapter 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now that is an exclusive term. I am the bread of life. Nobody else is. It's repeated in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Subsequently, he said in chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. And again, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, 9-5. 
Then we have uh, in 10.7, I am the door of the sheep. And again, I am the door in chapter 10, verse 9. Then he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's 10.11. And again, I am the good shepherd and I, I know my own and my own know me. That's 10.14. Excuse me, that's, that's 10.14, yes. And I am the resurrection and the life. That's 11.25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Then in 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, in chapter 15 verse 1, I am the true vine. Apart from these, uh, there are other important I am statements of Jesus. For example, 6, 28, 24, and 28, 58, and now, I gave you the verses there in the notes. But particularly note this one in John eight twenty four and 25. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Now the English adds he because uh, it's uh, the that's it sounds better in English. I am he, but it's not. It's not what it what reads in the Greek. You, he said, you are from uh, below. I'm from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. And I told you that you should die in your sins, for unless. You believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What is he saying there? I believe that these I am statements, all of them, are a clear allusion to God's identification to Moses on the back side of the wilderness there, on Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, when he appeared to him in the burning bush, and Moses asked, Whom will, who will I say sent me? What is your name? God never gives him a name. But he said, I am that I am has sent you. Yahweh. What does that mean? God says, I am the self-existent one. I am the only self-existent one. I am the eternally self-existent one. I am God. And there is no God beside me. I am. That's Exodus 3 and verse 14. The important I am of Jesus Christ is is he's identifying himself with Yahweh. I am. There is none other but, but me. And it was given, this one was given in response to Thomas's question, how can we know the way? How typical is Thomas's understanding and expectation of his relationship with Christ? 
as with all the other disciples, Thomas reveals that he did not really hear what Jesus was teaching him. The whole of Christ's teaching focused on the fact that He is our salvation. Read again these I Am statements. The original I Am, Yahweh, the name by which He would be known to His people, is His being there all. You understand that? The gods of the heathen, they're worshipped to appease and cajole them so that they will act favorably toward the worshiper. They're sometimes capricious and they do hard and dumb things to the worshiper and the worshiper is afraid of them because he doesn't, they don't know what to expect of their gods. So they're constantly worshiping these gods either to appease them so they won't pull these stupid tricks on them or they want some blessing or some favor from that God, but that's all they are. You'll never find a worshiper of a foreign God who says, my God is my all. I love Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I desire only Him. I want to live in Him and for Him. See, this is the point. Jesus came not simply to provide for life, but to be that life. Is Jesus your life? Or is He just your way to get to heaven? I accepted Jesus as my Savior, so I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Well, I would be very careful about that. You may be fooling yourself. See, Jesus informed Thomas that he was the way to the Father. He was not going to show them the way. Do you see that? He's not going to show them the way. He was the way. No one could come to the Father except by Him. He could... He would leave the he would not excuse me leave the disciples to themselves to find their own way, and again he followed his statement with another word that in itself doesn't make any sense if one sees Jesus simply as a guide to point the way to God. And here's what he said to follow: If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Now, what does that mean? The Greek term here, to know, is used of intimate relationships and an intimate knowledge. Knowing Jesus is to be in an intimate union of faith. And that would provide the disciple with a full understanding of Jesus' relationship to the Father and theirs as well. And no wonder Jesus said, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Because Jesus knew what he was going to do in the hearts and lives of those disciples. So then when Philip requested, show us the Father, Jesus simply doubled down. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You get that? Philip, I and the Father are one. 
and you are going to be one with me and the Father. Finally, Jesus is the way to the Father and two terms, these two terms here, truth and life, I believe, are subordinate. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is, is a descriptive of God's divine nature. Jesus is the truth, the revelation of the living revelation of God and of his divine nature. So no one has ever seen God, the only God who is in at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made him known. Chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus is also the life of God. God is everything that lives owes its existence to the living God. He is life. So, Jesus is also the life of God who came to grant life to his own. So, we read in chapter 5, verses 27 and, or 26, uh, 24 and 26. Truly, I say to you, I, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. Did you hear that? Whoever hears my words and believes on him who sent me already has, not will get, has eternal life. Eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. For death, you see, is the wages of sin. You take the wages of sin away, and you have life, eternal life. For as the Father is life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus did not come merely to show the way because he is the way, the truth, and the life of God manifest in human flesh. And through him, God is restoring a people to union and oneness with him as they live out his life in them. Do you understand that? So we read in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope that is that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. What is a church? It's the union of a people who are already in union with God. So Jesus was sent to bring about this restoration by bringing people to the Father and into this true, uh, true union that results from it. So Jesus promised, because I live, you will live also. And then he continued, this is in verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in, in, that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoa. No wonder Paul wrote there in Galatians 3.6, In Christ you were all sons of God 
in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. And he also said in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Are you in Christ? Is Christ in you? Are you in this sacred union that God the Father and God the Son have with each other? And He has now, because of His divine power, incorporated you. So I have this. These are the lessons. Does Christ live in you? Is the life you live Christ living in you? Can you say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And then secondly, is our union in Christ the evidence uh, evidenced in our relationship with others? I Again, I'm just amazed here that what Ron spoke at the table this morning dovetails right into this. Your brother, your relationship to your brothers and sisters in Christ, the church should be a testimony to the world that all believers live in, in the unity of Christ's life. That is why Paul charged the church at Corinth, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there, are, there is quarreling among you. My brothers... What I mean is that each of you says, I am a follower of Paul, I am a follower of Apollos, I am a follower of Cephas, I, or I follow Christ. And then he asks the question, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Father, I thank you for this powerful truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way, the truth, and life. He is the life. He is the truth. And He's the only way that we can ever get to the Father. And we, and with Him, we are in Him, and thus we are in the Father too. In this marvelous mystical union. Oh God, make that a reality in our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ that I am in Him who is everything. And I praise You and I thank You in Jesus' name.